0: and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak.
1: Thank you, Lord, we are so privileged to have your word. Um, Lord, we are not left alone wondering who you are and what we are created to do. Lord, you've given us counsel and guidance in your word Uh, We who are your children have the privilege of the Holy Spirit that uh, uh, illuminates that word and makes it known to us, and Lord, you you want us to be people of your word, you want us to grow in our understanding of your word, and as well as, Lord, to apply it practically in life, and I ask today as we look at this, this subject of spiritual warfare that we would not be sidetracked by things that may come from our culture, but Lord, we would be honing in to what your word says and seeing that as the power and the basis uh, of our understanding of what it means to be in this spiritual battle. And, um, and today, Lord, would you just use me as your messenger to faithfully proclaim your truth, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And the Apostle Paul um, has already told the Ephesian believers, and then, of course, ultimately us, that they are to put on the armor of God, because as believers, they are under constant attack from the devil and his hierarchy of angels. It is truly a diabolical attack. You may have heard that expression before, but for something to be diabolical, it means it is the devil that is behind it. And so this is literally a diabolical attack. This is a a diabolical battle that we are in. And in that battle, battle I should say, Paul tells us to stand, to hold our ground, and to endure the onslaught of the devil and his armies. Puritan pastor John Bunyan in the 17th century uh, was put in jail on a number of occasions for preaching the gospel and for refusing to not preach the gospel. And... During those times, he took advantage of the opportunity of being in isolation to write a lot of pamphlets and some books, and one of those books has become a bestseller for many years, and of course you may know it as Pilgrim's Progress, um, the story of Christian, a pilgrim on his journey to the celestial city, and ultimately that would be the kingdom of God or heaven. And so this morning, I want to begin by reading a section entitled, The Inevitable Conflict where Christian does battle with the devil, and the devil here is identified as Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Suddenly, Apollyon erupted into a fierce rage, shrieking, I am an enemy of the prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I have come out with this purpose, to stop you. Apollyon, beware of what you do, warned Christian, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore you had better watch yourself. Then Apollyon spread himself out in such a way as to cover the entire width of the way and challenged, I am without fear in this matter. Prepare to die, for I swear by my infernal dwelling that you shall go no farther. I will destroy your soul right here. And at that he hurled a flaming arrow at Christian's heart. But Christian had a shield in his hand with with which he blocked the arrow. Then Christian drew his sword and roused himself for battle. Apollyon, with feverish pace, began throwing arrows as thick as hail. It was all Christian could do to avoid them, and even so, he was wounded in his head, his hand, and his foot. This caused Christian to retreat somewhat. Seeing this, Apollyon fell upon him with full and sudden fury. Christian regained his courage, however, and resisted, a gallantry, or as gallantry as he could. This fierce combat went on for more than half a day until Christian's strength was almost completely spent. Because of his wounds, he grew weaker and weaker. Apollyon saw his most opportune moment and drew up close to Christian. He began to wrestle with Christian and throw him forcefully to the ground. Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Gloating, Apollyon said, I am sure I have you now. With that, he assaulted Christian nearly to the point of death so that he began to despair of life itself. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was preparing to strike his final blow to completely annihilate his foe, Christian quickly stretched out his hand and grabbed his sword saying, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise again. With that, Christian gave Apollyon a deadly thrust that made him fall back as if mortally wounded. Seeing this, Christian attacked again, saying, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's just amazing how Bunyan brings the truth of the word of God and paints this wonderful picture of this warfare. This is not the only account he has where he encounters Apollyon But this this kind of paints a picture of the reality of this battle that is raging in the life of a believer. A Christian heading down the road toward his promised inheritance, heaven, the celestial city. And yet, while he's on that road, there is going to be battle after battle after battle after battle. Some are going to be skirmishes. Some are going to be heavy, intense battles. But they are going to be present. So the question now is what are Christians to do in the face of spiritual forces that are intent on stopping God's plan and purpose. And last week we emphasized that we need to understand three things. We need to understand God's full protection. That's the point of chapters 1 through 3 that we are in Christ, that we have these spiritual blessings. Secondly, we we must un, uh, not be outwitted by the schemes or the methods of the devil. We can't be ignorant of his designs, so we need to be aware of how he works. The third thing is we must apply biblical practice by putting into practice what we believe. We say we believe certain things, but now we have to live our lives practicing what we believe, putting them into practice. So in verses 10 through 13, Paul is calling all believers everywhere to stand armed for battle against the evil one in the strength of the Lord. That's what we looked at last week. Today, as we look at verses 14 through 17, Paul explains for us the nature and function of the Lord's armor that we are to put on or to take up. And he's telling us how to stand in this armor that he has provided for us. So we will pick it up at verse 14. And he says, stand, therefore. Stand. He's already talked about standing holding your ground, not allowing any onslaught to push you back. And there's a a need, friends, in the context of what it means to be a follower of Christ for Christians to be stable in the face of warfare. John Stott says this, Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. Now, although the idea of the armor of God is rooted in the picture of our Lord, clothed in armor as a warrior king fighting for his people in the Old Testament, in particular in the passages found in Isaiah, Paul turns to the armor of the Roman soldier around him to kind of give the specifics of this spiritual warfare metaphor. And so each of these pieces of armor in this metaphor are going to depict for us an aspect of divine strength that the believer needs to fight the battle. Remember we looked at before, you know, your strength is in the Lord. So the Lord is the one who is granting you strength. Now the battle reveals those particular aspects of that strength that we need as we fight this Battle. Now remember, this is the armor of the Lord. This is not an armor of your making. This is His armor, forged and furnished by God Himself. And so this armor which the, the Messiah wears in battle, as depicted in Isaiah, is now provided for His people as they engage in spiritual warfare. It's an incredible picture. And just, just it's an awesome reality that, that God has, has granted us this armor as we live our lives for his glory. And he has provided for us strength as we put on this armor. So to be a Christian, we must put on the full armor of God. I just want to emphasize that word full for a minute here. Because the idea of full is the Greek word panoplia, which means to be full or the complete set of something. So, ladies, if I were to take you out and to buy you a tea set without a teapot, it wouldn't be a complete set, would it? It wouldn't be a panoplia. Guys, if you wanted to go out and play golf and you didn't have a complete set of golf clubs, you'd be really discouraged because you need that particular iron for that particular shot. And you need the whole thing. Or maybe you don't have a complete set of socket wrenches, right? That one That one that you need is not there because you don't have a complete set. What he's talking about here then is not the need for Christians to put on pieces of the armor, but to put on the whole armor. And one of the problems that we face today is that we tend to be very, very casual as to how we dress as Christians in this spiritual battle. Maybe we don't take the battle seriously. Maybe we're just ignorant to the actual battle and to the armor. But Paul here is saying, put on the whole armor of God. Don't be casual about it. See this as serious. And if you are choosing just to pick pick and choose um, with that armor, it's going to be disastrous for you because the Christian life is full of skirmishes, battles, and they are continual. And get this, Satan doesn't go on vacation. And when you're on vacation, he's not on vacation. In fact, when you're on vacation, he may be working even harder because you are on vacation. And what happens when you're on vacation? Your guard is down. It's all about me. And so things start happening in your heart and in your thinking that are all focused away from Christ and what it means to follow him because it's like, ah, I'm pampering me right now. This is about me and anything that goes against me. And Satan jumps in and says, ah, great opportunity here. He doesn't go on vacation in the spiritual realm, and neither should we. We don't want to give him opportunity to step in and to disrupt. So Paul wants us to stand, having put on this this armor of God. And there are going to be some participles in this passage that we've read that are going to help us understand that these are commandments. These are are, uh, imperatives that we must follow in order to fight this battle. And of course, you know, having uh, put on the armor of God, if you look down at verse, uh, verse 14, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on uh, the, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and having put on the shield of faith. These are all commandments now that we are given as his children. But it's not the kind of commandment of an ogre father. This is a commandment of someone that's saying, listen, the battle's gonna be tough. Don't leave that behind. You're going to need that. Okay? So God wants us to be prepared and ready with the armor that he has for us. Charles Wesley, um, in his uh, pretty well-known hymn, maybe it's lost somewhat today, but it's Soldiers of Christ Arise, stanza three, says it this way, Stand then in his great might, with all his strength endued, and take to, to to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. And he's saying, the whole armor. This is what you need in order to fight the battle. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the armor. Next week, we'll look at the weapons, which will be the sword of the Spirit, and then also prayer. But we're going to focus in on the five pieces of armor. So first of all, stand firm with the belt of truth. Stand firm with the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now this was a Roman belt. Uh, the historians say it was a little bit more like an apron um, made typically of leather that would that would cover the lower abdomen and it'd be used to hold everything together. It was somewhat like um, your underwear in the sense that it was foundational to your garments. You needed it to, to do a couple of things. In particular it held the tunic in place um, so that the soldier could run freely and maneuver without being hindered uh, or without being impeded. And this was really, really important, especially in the context of um, uh, hand-to-hand combat, uh, close quarters combat. Then there was also, this was the place where the sword was kept. It was kept securely in place. And without this belt, uh, the soldier would be clumsy, he would be distracted, he would be powerless to face the enemy in battle, and that is why it is needed to be fastened. Now, um, this word fastened is interesting to me, Um, and I think in today's culture, especially here in the Bay Area, um, there is a, fortunately it's kind of moving out, but there is a fashion that has taken place over the past number of years, um, and it's the fashion of the saggy pants. And that's, of course, brought about by the hip-hop culture. And, um, you know, fads come and go. I did crazy things when I was a teenager as far as clothing is concerned. We all have probably been there. Um, But this one in particular is somewhat distracting as well as humorous at the same time. It's distracting in the sense that, you know, when I'm out doing grocery shopping, I don't want to see someone's underwear, right? Or at the restaurant, that kind of... So it's really kind of like, you know, do you really... All right? But it's humorous also on the other side when you see a guy walking down the street with a bag of groceries and he's holding the groceries in one hand and with the other hand he's holding up his pants. Okay? And what's even funnier now is you can go on YouTube and you can see people who have tried to rob stores all right? and then they're running away from the police and they're running like penguins right? and they're trying to get away but their, their baggy pants are impeding them. All right? Why? Because they don't have their belts fastened. And some of your more old-fashioned guys are saying, yeah, i like tighten that belt, buddy. Hike that belt up, you know, put it into place. Right. There's a need to have a belt. And when that belt is in place properly, it allows the individual to run freely and to do what he needs to do in particular in battle um, without worrying whether anything is going to get in the way. And so this belt of truth is critically important here. What is the truth that is being talked about here? Because the belt, then, is pointing us to this characteristic of truth or this reality of truth. Now, there's a debate among theologians here as to what this is specifically referring to. Is it the object of truth that would be the truth of Scripture? Or is it the subject of truth that would be the truth of inward character? And um, in my reading, uh, my conclusion concurs with a number of people. I think think it actually comes down to being both. Let me explain why I would say that's the truth, okay? First, it fits the context of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 are what? This is who you are in Christ. This is the truth. Chapters 4 through 6, primarily, are application of that truth. They're saying, because this is who you are in Christ, this is how you are to live. One is objective truth, one is subjective application of that truth. You see that? So it fits the flow and the purpose of what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. But um, again, again, subjective truth is a natural outflow of objective truth. You cannot be biblically sincere or honest or have a, be a, a person of biblical integrity Unless it is the result of God's work through his word, through his gospel, in the heart of the believer being fleshed out. So both are absolutely necessary. One flows out of the other. So let's look at the first one, objective truth. Objective truth. It is the truth of the scriptures. Truth from the word of God, from the Bible. Jesus said to the Jews who were listening to his teaching, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I've heard people on radio stations or TV shows quote this passage out of its context and not recognize that the truth here, of course, is talking about the truth of the Gospel, the truth of God's Word, okay? not the truth that they have come up with. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer to his father, John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he identifies what truth is there. But in Ephesians, we see the objective truth clearly in at least two verses. So if you're in Ephesians, let's look at a couple of verses together. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the word of truth there is what? It's the gospel. It's the word that explains and reveals God's redemptive truth, his gospel. And then also in chapter 4, verse 21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So you have this object of truth that Paul is directly talking about in the book of Ephesians that lets us know that he is emphasizing here the truth that comes from the Word of God, that reveals the Gospel, that reveals that Jesus is then that Word or that truth. Now, in this day of relevance or even tolerance, mankind doesn't believe that God in this last day is revealing himself exclusively through Christianity. I mean, in relativism, it's like, you know, if you want to believe in Christianity, go ahead. That's just one of the many ways, you know, that you can get to God. Um, you know, I've been to airports a number of times, flying different places. Um, I don't kind of, you know, say I'm going to head to Bolivia, and when I get to the airport, say, well, it really doesn't matter what plane I take. There's only one plane that's going to get me to Bolivia, It may not get me to Bolivia, and that scenario but that's a whole nother story but the point is that there's only one plane in a sense that you can get on in order to get to god and that is the plane that takes you through the cross christianity is exclusive with the truth that jesus christ is the only way and relativism wants to say "Ah, that's one of the ways but that's not what the word of god says if you read the word of god honestly it's very clear jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive statement. Okay? So Paul instructs Timothy based on that reality in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Why is it that, why is it that Paul is telling Timothy this? He's saying this because as a pastor, he has a responsibility to properly handle the word of truth, to to present it as it is, to present what it's actually saying, not to create some new truth out of it, to present the truth of the gospel and to handle it carefully, to handle it accurately. So there is this need then for this objective truth, and this is part of the belt that is holding things together. It is also then a subjective truth, a subjective truth, which is um, the truth of inward character that is the result of the gospel in the life of a believer. And Paul connects subjective truth and objective truth as he instructs Timothy. And here's a couple of passages to, um, to help us. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, Holding faith, That would be the truth and a good conscience. They both have their place. I I would hope that as you you look to those who are in leadership in this church, that they believe God's word as well as want to live out God's word. Not just enough to say, I believe God's word. You want those people who who are in leadership, and in fact that should be true of all believers, to actually believe God's word and to say, but we also want to live it out. We also want that truth to affect us. So that we are people who tell the truth, who speak the truth, who have integrity, who are sincere. And then also, 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself, that's the subjective part, and on the teaching. Again, subjective, objective, all right? The truth affects us. And so truth is this this, um, belt that wraps around the tunic of the Christian life and holds Everything together. In Ephesians, if we turn there, Paul emphasized truthfulness. Chapter 4, verse 25, um, where it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And then also in chapter 5, verse 9, where it's identified as the fruit of light. So this is a call to be a person of integrity as a result of the gospel at work in your life. Now, this is so important to, to, to God that he gives us a vivid picture of um, how falling short on this subject is really a very serious reality to him. And I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 5. I'm not going to say too much. I'm just going to read this passage. and You probably know it, and I'll mention the name Ananias and Sapphira, and you'll go, oh yeah, exactly, I get it. let me read chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 and just let the word of God paint the picture for how God or what God thinks about his people when they are deceptive, when they are not truthful but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles feet, let me just say this There was nothing wrong with him selling the piece of property. It's perfectly fine. And there was nothing wrong with giving the proceeds to the church. That wasn't the issue here, okay? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? In other words, if they sold the piece of property for $10,000 and they kept some of it back and they presented it to the church Basically saying, "Hey, we sold our property, and it—you know—we got eight thousand dollars for it. It's a good thing that he sold his property. It's a good thing that he's given to the church, but he's still being deceptive because he's holding back two thousand dollars. He's presenting himself to be something that he is not. While it remained unsold, did I not remain uh, it remain your your own? And after it was sold, was it not your?" Um, at your disposal, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? See, he he had to think through, what am I doing here? I want to appear like I'm contributing, but I want some for myself too, right? So this is all the battle that's raging in his heart, and that was the direction he went. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That means he died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after the interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for, such, uh, for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's a pretty, pretty heavy passage of Scripture, isn't it? Anyone in here that has ever told a lie? (laughs) All right. You're not lying against men. Ultimately, you're lying against God. Now, this one was really drastic because they were presenting themselves in the context of the church to be something and to do something, but God needed to expose it. Now, here's the point. We cannot be ready to fight the enemy if we're not strong and ready with the truth. We cannot be ready to fight the enemy if we're not strong and ready with the truth. That means that we are growing in our understanding of the truth that means that we're growing in our application of that truth now we're, we're all in this flux aren't we we're all in this place of growing in our understanding and growing in our application that's why it's called progressive growth in Christ progressive sanctification but we must all be in process as we we read you know pilgrims progress where Christian is on this road to the celestial city, he's at least on the road to the celestial city. And if we're God's children, we're at least on the road pursuing Christ's likeness. And so we we must emphasize in our lives this need to have truth and to believe it and to know it, but then also having known it, to begin to live it out. And we need each other to help us understand how that takes place. But this belt of truth is what holds everything else together. Secondly, there is the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, now, this breastplate was a, a metal piece that was uh, that covered the, the the vital organs, both front and back, and especially protected the heart. It was strong enough so that just a, a, a straight punch of a, of a short blade would not pierce that armor, okay? Now, the idea of the breastplate of righteousness, this word righteousness is a really key word in, in our understanding of the gospel. Righteousness is God's own righteousness that, he, that is freely given to all who believe in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So it is, it is Christ, then, who gives us Um, or say, God, who gives us the righteousness of Christ, encloses us in that righteousness. It is not something that we can create or generate on our own. You can't be more righteous because you are being gooder or doing nice things. And somehow saying, see, God, how great I am. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. He will turn around and say, you know, those may be nice things, but there is none righteous No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So even the good that you do, if you're not a child of God, is considered by God to be ungodly. It is not considered to be righteous at all. The righteousness that's being talked about here is not a righteousness then that we somehow drum up because we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So what is the righteousness that is being talked about here? Is it the imputed righteousness that comes only from God by faith? Is it the practical righteousness that is the result of God's work in us? And again, just like we looked at truth, I think both are in play here. There's a need for imputed righteousness to be identified, but there's also then this righteousness that is lived out um, based on the gospel. So how do we put on this righteousness? First of all, we embrace imputed righteousness. I realize that might be a big word. Imputed simply is a transactional word. Um, If you took accounting and you remember debits and credits, or if you go to the bank and you say, I want to put money in my account... You are imputing, you're putting money on an account. That's the idea. And as it relates to the account of your sin, God imputes His righteousness to you so that your debt has been paid. And not only has it been paid, but now it has been invested with righteousness. This is something God does for us, it is not something that we do ourselves. So, as we began our services today, I had us read a passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's Jesus Christ, His Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we then, by virtue of what he has done, believed in him, there was a transaction that took place in the spiritual realm where we now have become something that we are not in and of ourselves. And it's not that we are righteous because from that time we did something better. It is all God's work. It is all his doing. We either stand before God naked in our own righteousness or clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. But in our own self-righteousness, we are nothing. We have no leg to stand on. So ours is an alien righteousness, which means it is outside of us. It is God who then applies his righteousness to us by virtue of our faith that we put in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is God's righteousness that becomes our own righteousness, and because we are God's righteous, righteousness, we act and we think and we behave differently. Imputed righteousness is what God does to us, and the result of that now being lived out in the believer's life is what we call practical righteousness. All right? Practical righteousness. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ, To God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Because of what Christ has done by declaring us righteous. And another word for that is justified. We're in a right standing with God now. Because that is true, that affects now how we think, how we behave, the choices that we make. It's practical in nature. And so, righteousness then basically says listen, because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I am choosing now to act and behave and to live in a way that conforms with what God says I already am. So, if I am told that I am holy in Christ and I want to live my life, in a holy way. So it's an outflow of who I am in Christ. So our righteousness in Christ is fleshed out in how we live as God's children. It's a righteousness that depends or rests on faith. Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 9 reveal that for us. In other words, we must exercise faith to believe that we are righteous. Righteous. Again, not because of our efforts, but because of Christ. So here's how this this works with the battle. Satan comes along, and he sees that you have fallen in your walk with God. You have sinned. You've fallen flat on your face. And he says to you, so you think you're righteous, huh? Look at what you just did. In fact, look at what you did here here, and here, and here, and here, and here, and here, and here. And you think that you're righteous. And with this armor that God has given us, this breastplate of righteousness, we stand before Satan and we say, hey, hold back. My righteousness is not based on what I have done. My righteousness is based on what Jesus Christ has done. And so in that moment of doubt, in that moment of battle, in that moment where Satan is trying to trip me up, I am fighting with him with the truth of righteousness that is not Mine, because I created it, but because it's Christ and he has granted it to me and I stand in him satisfied, complete with hope and confidence that my position in Christ has not changed, even though I have fallen many times. And that's how we fight that battle of righteousness. And then, with that truth, and in the face of all that revelation of my sinfulness, I say God forgive me and I restore my relationship with him and I continue now to live out of the righteousness that I have been declared that I have but now is affecting how I think, behave, and live. It's critically important, friends. Our righteousness, get this, is an impenetrable shield. It's an impenetrable male. I'll, I'll read G.D. Finley who says it best the completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together in an impenetrable mail. He's talking here about chain mail. So this righteousness that comes from Christ and this righteous living are, are woven together and Satan cannot penetrate it. He'll fool you into thinking if you don't believe what God says in his word. But we must then turn back and say, God, you said that I'm righteous. I'm going to hold on to that. And I'm going to live in light of that. So that is the breastplate of righteousness. The next piece of armor, kind of strange to consider it armor necessarily, but might want to say equipment, is the shoes of the gospel of peace. It says, and shoes for your feet... Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, some of you here like shoes a lot. I'm not naming any names, and I'm not picking on any particular gender at all. Um, A couple of years—it was last um, summer—our family went up to Portland, and I remember going downtown Portland. We went to the Nike store there. It's many, many levels, and in there they had uh, a historical display of Air Jordans. They're all white. But like the first ones, and then they kind of, they progressed through the years. And my favorite one, of course, were the pumps. You guys remember the pumps? Yeah. You know, and they used to have the pump, you know, you pump them up, and they would get tighter and tighter, and then they came out with the pump turkey for Thanksgiving and stuff like that, and, you know, everything had, had a pump on it and stuff, All right, But, and, and you just saw the years of these shoes, um, and, and each year they were trying to improve on what they did last year, and, and each year technology grew, and, and so they, they came out with a better understanding of what, you know, what was good for the feet, and what was healthy, and what was strong, and what materials to use. And you just see this incredible history of these different shoes. It was really, um, really kind of interesting to me. What we have here, though, in these shoes are not so much shoes, but they're war boots. In fact, these were so unique in that day that the Roman soldiers could march faster And for longer than any of their enemies, it's one of the reasons why the Roman armies were so effective in their conquest is because the other armies would be so tired out from running away from the soldiers. But the Romans could keep on going because they had strong shoes. These were not meant for running, but for standing and for marching. And they were thick-soled, but on the bottom of these soles uh, were nailed through these nails. And they, had, they, were, they, they were giving basically the soldier extra traction, kind of like studs on a, on a soccer boot, OK? Now, I think, I think that we would all agree that proper shoes are essential for hiking, for running, for sports, and maybe there are some other things we could add to that. When your feet hurt badly, you can hardly stand, you can hardly walk, you can hardly run. It's important to have good shoes, right? Um, You certainly can't fight well if your feet are hurting. And quite frankly, if you're a soldier and your feet are hurting and you can't run, you can hardly stand, you're easy pickings. You need to have shoes that are well made and provide stability and security. Now, although I played basketball in my my life, in my history, um, and I enjoy it, I am much more a soccer fiend. You guys already know that. Um, And... uh, what you find in the soccer arena is the uh, the legacy of a shoe made by Adidas called the Adidas Samba. Anyone here wear Adidas Sambas? I see. If, if I if 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 you wear Adidas Sambas, um, we're family because I notice Adidas Sambas. All right, seriously, um, I'm a Samba guy, and um, I notice this. Um, I've worn them for years since high school, they have not changed at all. It's the same shoe. And they're durable, they're made well, they last a long time, um, and probably are the best-selling and most durable soccer shoe on the market, bar none, OK? So if you don't have some, you go and get some, all right? I've worn them to play in the plush grass of Costa Rica, in the mud of England in the snow of Russia, in the rain of Bolivia, and the artificial turf of California, okay? They have been all over the place, and they do last a long time. But as good as Adidas Sambas are as a shoe, when you wear them to play on a field that is wet, you will always come out looking like the amateur. Because they have no studs. And as a result, you'll slide everywhere and your opponents will get by you really easily. And so the shoe that God is talking about here are solid and have the kind of grip uh, so that the soil um, and, and the shoe kind of form together and they're solid so they can have a firm footing. When that soldier is holding his ground with these shoes, he's not giving up any territory and he can't slide because they're entrenched in the ground. So is this incredible picture that you have with these shoes. Now there's this idea of readiness. To be ready meant that the soldier was standing in position on solid ground waiting for the attack of the enemy. Okay? Um, I don't want to get ahead here. Um, this solid readiness then comes then from the gospel of peace. This peace that comes to us uh, through the gospel. Okay? So the gospel of peace is our firm footing in the battleground against Satan. So so this image then is just being used to take it to this place to say there's something about these shoes of this soldier that helps us understand how the gospel comes and helps us in this battle. And the gospel comes and provides for us stability and security in the context of the battle. And here are three ways that this idea of peace is found um, in in particular Paul's writings, but in the word of God to help us understand um, how we are to to fight this battle or how we're to wear this armor. First of all, there's the peace with God. Of course, the peace with God comes because of our uh, our conversion, okay? Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means that's our salvation, our conversion. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a child of God, you are now at peace with God. Those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior are not at peace with God. They are, they are enemies of God. They are enmity. They're at war with Him. But we who are God's children, we are at peace with Him. That's the first area. The second one, then, flows out of that, and that is the peace of God. Okay? This, then, is the peace of that believers experience because they understand who God is and what he is doing in their lives. And we wrestle our way with the word of God to understand that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing, that through that difficulty or circumstance that we're going through, that I can find peace because he is at work accomplishing his purposes and plan. And that's why Philippians 4.7 says this, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And friends, we've said this before because I know many of you have been through some really difficult times and one of the common statements is, I don't know how people go through this without the Lord Jesus Christ as their help. He brings peace. He brings perspective. And then, there's this aspect of the peace that comes from god and this is really a proclamation of peace this is the gospel that is going out okay ephesians 2 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 says this how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to Zion, your God reigns. Beautiful feet, who proclaim peace. And God is calling us, not only to to be satisfied, and to rest in the peace that we have, because of our new relationship with him, and then the peace that comes, as a result of that relationship being applied in life, but he also wants to be people, who are in the midst of the battle, who are proclaiming the gospel of peace. And friends, hear this, on the battleground, there are people who are suffering, who are being torn up, and they need the message of God's peace. They need encouragement. And soldiers, when they're in the middle of the battle, they will, they will encourage one another by saying words and giving counsel. And we who are in the battle, just like people around us, need to hear the word of truth, the gospel of peace. But it is God's peace that provides stability. So let me just kind of unpack that a little bit you're going through a trial it is chaotic and your your heart wants to say god why are you doing this why now why are all these things happening to me and you you begin to wrestle with your circumstances but then you also begin to pull from god's word what god says about what he is doing and why you're here and he's told us listen your life is but a vapor you're just here for a little bit he's telling us that that He has a purpose for us to accomplish for His glory, and then we are going to be at home with Him. So the fact that I'm still alive and breathing right now means that He is not done with me yet, that He's still working through me. And we begin to apply ideas and concepts like that to our present situation, and we fight against these these places that we can go. We say, you know what? God knows what He's doing. He is totally in control. He's sitting on His throne. He knows the chaos on this earth, but he is accomplishing his plan through me. And what a great prospect I have yet of heaven. And it just begins to, to soften now my, my wandering mind and heart to the place where I'm, I'm reconciled, that I'm at peace, that even though I'm going through this trial, he is in control and he is accomplishing his purposes. Now, God, what do you want me to do to live in accordance with you even though I'm going through a trial? And that peace helps us to wrestle our ourselves to the place where we're once again willing to say, God, how do you want me to live? And maybe, how do you want me to open my mouth and testify? So there's this peace that is the result of these spiritual shoes, so to speak. Then there's the shield of faith. The shield of faith. And let me just say one more thing just about the piece. I just, I'll be real quick. One of the things that here, this is the, the the piece of of the gospel. I just want to mention the fact that one of the things that society wants to do is to, to maybe accept the gospel, um, but they'll change it a little bit. It's the gospel plus something, or it's the gospel minus something. And, and I just want to, I, as I was studying this week, I, I was just thinking about this scenario that the gospel is simple enough that a child can understand it, yet profound enough and so vast as an ocean that that very same child that is understanding that gospel is playing on its shores. Just get that picture. Here's this child playing on the shores understanding the gospel but that gospel is vast and it is that beautiful gospel that we have the privilege of proclaiming that brings peace to other people but friends it can be distorted it can be twisted and we must then with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness be willing to proclaim that gospel of peace now to the shield of faith shield of faith In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There were two shields that the Roman soldiers would use. There was a small shield used more like for hand-to-hand combat. It was more like the size of a frisbee. It wasn't that big at all. Then there was the large shield. It was about four foot by two foot. um, Very similar to the kind of shields that the Spartans would use. And The Spartan mother would say this to her son going off to war. Take care you return with your shield or on it. And the the whole point there is that this shield was so big that you could lay someone on there. And one of the benefits of that particular shield then um, was that it covered the whole body. So in the midst of battle, the soldier could hide behind that shield. It could also endure javelins. Um, It could absorb the fiery arrows that were so often used in that day. You see, it was made of, of two layers of laminated wood covered with linen, and then also with hide, that would be leather, and then at the top and the bottom it was bound. So this was a heavy-duty shield, specifically made to, to, to handle those spears and those fiery arrows, okay? But it was also a shield that was most effective on the battlefield, not just to be used for personal protection, but also to be used alongside of other soldiers who would move as a wall together. And if you've ever seen any movies or any kind of documentary on the Roman uh, soldiers and how they did warfare and how those shields were used together, it's an amazing, it's an amazing scene. And so there's a hint here then to remind us as we are reading this book for ourselves that Paul is writing to a church, right? And so he's speaking to the church and saying, put on the whole armor of God. At the same time, he's speaking to individuals. And as a church, when we all raise our shields because the darts are coming in, we kind of gather together and we protect ourselves with those shields. There's a corporate dynamic here as well as an individual dynamic that I think is important for us to recognize. Now, what are the the fiery flaming darts? Do you remember Bunyan's account of Christian and what he said about Satan's darts? Let me just read it again. Paulion, with feverish pace, began throwing arrows as thick as hail. It was all Christian could do to avoid them, and even so, he was wounded in his head, his hand, and his foot. This caused Christian to retreat somewhat. I see, the reality is, friends, that we are not immune to these darts. and Very likely, we are going to get hit, and Bunyan paints it well in the hand and the foot, even even in the head. But that shield covered most of those darts. And just a reminder here of the intensity of the warfare. That the warfare is going on, and we may get hit here and there, but the, you know, Satan is, is sending these arrows intensely and purposely and continually. So it's very likely that we will be injured. But the question is, injured Where? Now, what are these darts? They'll take many forms, but here's a short list for you. Um, All right, um, let's go through them. I have a few others that are in my notes that aren't up there. But lusts, the very one that you struggle with is likely the one that he is going to come at you with. Um, Trials, finances, disease, death, conflict. Um, You could add a number of things there. I have another one here. Friendly or unfriendly fire from within, from within the body of Christ when God's people don't behave in a Christ-like manner or turn on one another. Pleasure. All right, the, the hunger for amusement and rest and enjoyment of life. False guilt. That's when you feel guilty for, for something that has been completely and totally forgiven been forgiven you don't need to feel guilty about it but you do then why do you feel guilty about it and satan comes along and says yeah yeah you should feel guilty about it. but it's already been paid for it's already been forgiven doubts in particular in the promises of god fear of your circumstances and of god's sovereignty in your life and sometimes we're afraid of what god is going to take us through you know, what do the next years look like for someone who is getting into their 50s? You know, God, what things am I going to have to face? It's all part of God's plan, but it can be a place that really discourages you. Anxiety, your inability to control your world. Hopelessness. You're not able to see God's solution. And we could, we could go on talking talk about more. This is a short list. But he comes at us with all sorts of different darts Because he wants to stop us in our pursuit of Christ. He wants to stop us being effective in in being a witness for him. And and, and living our lives for his glory. So we stand on the truth of God's word that says. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. That's Proverbs 30 verse 5. And Satan attacks and tempts God's people. And and they need to rely entirely on in faith upon the Lord alone um, if they are going to survive. So what does it mean to take up the shield of faith? I'm going to give you three things that I think um, summarize it. Number one, it means anticipating the attack of the enemy. Anticipating the attack of the enemy. We cannot afford to be passive in the battle. Satan will strike, and he will strike repeatedly. And he knows what best time to strike is. Like I told you, he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He is nothing like God in that sense. But he's been around for a long time. And he understands human nature. And so he knows when best to come at those who are his victims. Secondly, we must put faith in what God says in his word. And this is the main issue. If God says it, I must believe it. So the shield of faith begins by saying, hey, I put faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior. But now, as I'm fighting the battle, resting on that righteousness that is already mine, I'm fighting this battle and the doubts and the different things that are coming at me, the shield now is saying, no, that isn't true because God's word says this. No, what you're accusing me of there is not a reality because God's word says this. And I'm putting my trust in what God's word says, not in what I see before me. So this, this is an act of faith by one of God's children to not allow Satan to cause any doubt or struggle because I am using the shield to protect myself, but it's a shield of faith. I trust that what God says is true. His promises haven't changed. His control over the world Hasn't shifted. What he says is still true. So I fight to believe and to believe in what I believe. That makes sense. It is a fight of faith, an exercising faith that what God says in His Word is true, not what Satan is trying to challenge me with. And here's the third thing: Uh, standing with the body of Christ as we fight. We need the body of Christ to stand with us as we fight. As I mentioned, the nature of these shields is best utilized in the context of a group of soldiers acting as a unit to defend against the attack of the enemy. And so this is a reminder that he's writing then to a church. And then the final one is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Now this helmet was... Made of rough, rough. I should say, tough metal, um, either bronze or iron. So it was pretty heavy, um, but it was lined with felt and and sponge, so that it was a little softer on the head. Um, Armitage Robinson, who is a historian about these things, describes it this way: an inside lining of felt or sponge made the weight bearable. Nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce a heavy helmet, and in some cases, a hinged visor added frontal protection. So it was both something that was decorative. You've seen the Roman helmets, they had these plumes. And, but it was also made for protection. And the point here is that this helmet protected the head or in this situation, the arena of the mind. And so much of our battles then are fought in the arena of the mind. What you do is first fought. And so this is one of the reasons why we need to learn to control our minds and to anticipate circumstances so that we aren't reacting, but we're acting. We're we're deliberate about what we're thinking so that when things come up, we can be deliberate about our behavior and what we do in those contexts. So much of our battles then takes place in the arena of the mind. Here's Philippians chapter 2. We're told there that but to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. We're told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 2. We're told to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And that's uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And the song, um, Before the Throne of God Above, stanza 2. This is what it says. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there. Who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me and what he's saying here is Satan comes with these doubts and he's trying to battle me in the arena of my, arena of my mind and so what I do is I begin to look to Christ and I begin to force myself to think in a way that is biblical and reflects the truth of the gospel And that helps me then realize, you know what? What Satan is saying is not true because he wants to cause doubt in us. So what is this helmet of salvation? Paul gives us a clue in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Just listen. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we can say then this, this... The salvation of this helmet relates to salvation in a number of different ways. It is finding rest in our past salvation, which is one of the reasons why we have the Lord's Supper regularly. God wants us to be reminded of our Actual salvation experience. He wants us to find hope in our future salvation. This is how he begins this letter, talking about how we came to Christ, how it happened before the creation of the world, and how we have this wonderful, glorious inheritance yet awaiting us in heaven. That is a prospect, a wonderful prospect that we look forward to. It is our hope. But both of those two things being true then work together to give us confidence in our present salvation, in our present walk with God. Or we can say it a little differently. We can say it this way. That I am saved from the penalty of sin. That's what happened at conversion. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. Alright? I am being saved from the power of sin. That's your ongoing growth toward Christ-likeness. As you grow in your walk with God more and more, hopefully this is the plan, this is the way God wants it to be, the power of sin is being removed because I'm applying God's truth to my life. And then, ultimately, I will be completely saved from the presence of sin when I enter into the presence of God in heaven. You see, now, this is, this, is the, this is the reality of salvation that is helpful for you and for me. Because when Satan comes accusing us and filling our minds with doubts about our relationship with God, we can turn to him and say, I will not listen to you. Christ has not led me astray. I can confidently say with Paul, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day when he has been entrusted, what day, what has been entrusted to me. So this helmet of salvation gives us great tools to battle in the context of this warfare. And so this, this morning, As we close, I want to just emphasize the reality of this battle uh, by reading the words of Charles Spurgeon. Um, It'll be up there on the screen for you, too. You can follow along. He says, The Church of Christ is continually presented under the figure of an army, yet its captain is the Prince of Peace, Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of a peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point in the spirit of the gospel. Yet, nevertheless, the church on earth has, and until the second advent, must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. And how is this? It is in this very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that if it were not true, uh, if error were friends with it. Right? You, know, you can't have truth and error you know, joining together in a relationship. You have to fight for truth to be truth and to stay true. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lying. Now friends, this is in the arena of the spiritual realm and the integrity of the word of God in the context of the church. We are called to be people of peace. But we're also called to fight in the context of spiritual warfare. That doesn't mean physical fighting. But it means spiritual fighting. Fighting for the truth, for our lives, for the gospel, for the church, and ultimately for the glory of God. The battle is real. The armor is necessary. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation, these are clearly five words that demand our attention and our continual study. We must be confident in our understanding of these words as well as our application of them. Satan will not stop shooting his darts. The question is, will we be ready? Lord, help us. Lord, not just to think that, oh, that's a nice metaphor, but to take this to a deeper level and recognize why you have given us the spiritual armor. And Lord, that you expect us not just to observe it understand it, but Lord to appropriate it to put it on and by putting it on then to live our lives adorned by this armor we are already clothed in your righteousness but you have now commanded us to put on this armor and Lord help us to grow in our understanding of it, but Lord also to grow in our application of it and to see when Satan tempts us how we are to fight against him, not in our own strength, but in the strength that only comes from Christ. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.